a secret federal government plot to steal our river valley. This week, Council did, well, not a whole lot, but we'll talk about it. Plus, we'll get into some roadblocks with the National Urban Park Plan. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 253. If you heard off the top, it is the regular duo back at it, me and Mac. Uh, Stephanie joined us last week. And Mac, I actually heard quite a lot of positive feedback for Stephanie's guest role. I did as well. And I was able to listen to the show as a listener. And I thought it was great. You two did a fantastic job. It was especially great. I think that we had Stephanie on to be able to speak with authority about things she actually reported on and to convey conversations that she actually had with people. I think you and I do a pretty good job of that secondhand most of the time, <laughs> but it's nice to hear directly from the reporter working on this as well. I guess we'll experiment on uh, which is better because we will be talking about her reporting on the National Urban Park stuff later on in this episode. But first, Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. We've had a slew of ads come through this week. It's not really an ad, is it, Mac? No, it's a little bit different. We've invented something new, and we're excited to tell you about it. The not new part is that Taproot rewards its readers for referring people to sign up for our newsletter. So we have a referral program. At the bottom of all the newsletters you might get, so whether that's the Pulse or the Roundups, there's a referral code. And you can spread that around. And if people use your code when they sign up, you qualify for some tokens of our appreciation, starting with some cool Taproot and Speaking Municipally stickers. One of our fans has referred so many people that he's blown through all of the rewards we ever conceived of. Stickers, mugs, donations to charity, whatever. So we've invented a new reward for the super refer, and that is a shout out on Speaking Municipally. So I guess in this case, shout out to the super refer. Drum roll, please. It's Jeff Natchigal of Sugared and Spiced, the back alley baked goods store. Dozens of people now read The Pulse every day because Jeff said, this is a great thing that you should read about. And we're very grateful to Jeff for that. We're also grateful for uh, brownies, cheesecakes, and peanut butter marshmallow bars, all of which you can buy at Sugared and Spiced. I don't know if this is part of the shout out tier where we advertise your business, but hey, I'm doing it anyway, because I really do think they have the best cheesecakes in the city. Yeah, I think we should talk about their stuff. Every time I go there, we have to get a brownie. I love the brownie from Sugared and Spiced. It's so good. And my daughter, uh, my eldest daughter, cannot help but look longingly at the peanut butter marshmallow bar. So we usually leave with one of those as well. And I understand that is potentially one of their best selling items at the bakery. So, of course, thanks to Jeff for referring to Taproot. It is very much appreciated. And, of course, you can earn this shout-out, dear listener, by referring all your friends to check out Taproot's offerings like The Pulse and, indeed, this very podcast. This podcast is the best place to find out what Council was up to in the past week, which this week is nothing. <laughs> well, almost nothing. I mean, I, I went looking through the minutes here, Troy, because I didn't have a chance to listen this week, but it was a committee week, so we had... Community and Public Services Committee, Urban Planning and Executive Committee, and I was wondering, what did they decide? So I went and looked. I will briefly summarize what they decided, because it's not a very long list. They are recommending an $8 increase to the dog license fees so that that funding can be used to create and enhance off-leash dog parks in Edmonton, as well as address the financial deficit for the program. So that sounds sensible. I think that's a good decision that they've made. Committee also recommended that the mayor write a letter to the province about mental health and addictions. Letter writing is not really anything, Troy, but that's what they recommended. 
Sure. Executive Committee approved a lease agreement between the city and Arts Habitat for the Ortona Armory. And they also effectively approved two agreements, a million dollars plus. We don't know how much exactly because it's private with Rogers Communications for data center co-location services and $27 million for a water and sewer services company to help construct part of Blatchford West Stage 6. And then at Urban Planning Committee, they received everything for information. There were some reports about energy codes, labeling strategy. And that is it. And maybe that sounds like a lot. Maybe it took a lot of conversation to get to those things. But I look at the items do list, Troy, and I think about how many things have been delayed in the, the last couple of months. And I just was a bit surprised at how little they decided upon this week. If I was trying to act like I had been really busy at work when actually I had just been watching YouTube the whole week, that's the list that I would come up with. It's a lot of big words to describe a whole lot of nothing. Aside from the dog park one, not a great deal, I would say, that is going to impact Edmontonians day to day, right? I mean, the lease agreement with Artsab is important. Sure, I guess we need data center co-location services and Blatchford needs to continue be in Blatchford and getting developed, but not a great deal that's going to impact people in their day-to-day. This council is a council who has perpetually delayed items between meetings because meetings run long. Agenda management has been a struggle for basically the entire term of this council, especially in the context of things like OP12, like winter snow clearing, which of course is another point of consternation. Once again, I look outside and I see winter has rejoined us here in February and March. I struggle because I like to defend Edmonton City Council on the Facebook comment section when people say, these people are a waste of money. They're stealing all our tax dollars. You know, what are these people even doing? I find, you know, this is a very important level of government. These people really make decisions that impact us day to day. But just like, please don't use this week as an example to support that point. To be fair, I don't know. Maybe there's other factors here. Maybe there's continued impacts of what happened at City Hall that are causing things to get delayed and pushed. Yeah, of course, you mentioned day-to-day experience. And I think no item on council's agenda better impacts the day-to-day experience of Edmontonians than the city plan. This is our guiding document for the next foreseeable forever in the city. It's uh, (laughs) our solid municipal development plan. And we did actually get a report about city plan reporting and measurements. This is one of the reports that they received for information. And the report is all about establishing and communicating, I suppose, baseline measurements. I just wanted to highlight a few, Troy, that stood out to me. Obviously not enough for council to make a motion or committee to make a motion to do something different. But the very first one, 2 million new trees planted. That's something we've talked about before as a really critical part of city plan and helping to meet our emissions targets and all of that. The baseline measurement for that? Zero. Because apparently that's all we planted in 2021. We plant one tree and we're ahead of where we were on the baseline. That seems questionable to me. This is the typical under-promise, over-deliver scenario. If you teach your family that you can do the dishes, you can do the laundry, well, there's an expectation set. But if you break the dishes and make the laundry go moldy, no one's ever going to ask you to do that again. I should have thought of that. You're right. Yeah. Okay. Another one that stood out, uh, net per person, greenhouse gas emissions are zero. That's the goal. The baseline for this is from 2005, for some reason, when our measurement was 26 tons of CO2 per person. 2005 feels like quite a long time ago. Troy, there's a lot that has changed between 2005 and now. I did not listen, as I mentioned, to the meeting, so I don't know exactly why they chose that year, but it struck me as odd. Tricks me. 
again, not listening to the meeting as didn't do your homework and said, ah, this is the last time we got numbers. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, that, that, that could be it. The next two I'll mention aren't actually that surprising. So the goal is 50% of new units are added through infill. The baseline for that is 29%, which is what we achieved from 2020 to 2022. I think we already knew that, that number. And then the other one, uh, the goal is 50% of trips are made by transit and active transportation. This one's a little bit more confusing, but the baseline for that is 22%, which is from 2015. Surely we have more recent information than 2015 on that. And I would think that the pandemic would have significantly changed the situation in the city, but that's the baseline. We were sarcastically, um, you know, making some points about these and 29% of new units being infill in, you know, 2020 through 2022, that's actually a pretty laudable achievement in Edmonton, especially. I remember when council was talking about, you know, getting to 15% infill and, you know, you'd had some councillors from suburban ward saying, okay, set your dreams a little bit higher, Edmonton City right. Council. That's absurd. It's a quite an accomplishment what we've done on the infill front. And it does make the 50% infill goal actually seem achievable, especially with this new zoning bylaw renewal. I mean, you look around even anecdotally, there's a lot of infill that's uh, being built in mature neighborhoods. Like you see it everywhere you go. Okay, my favorite one, the last <laughs> one I'll mention, the goal, 15-minute communities that allow people to easily meet their daily needs. And the baseline... Measurement methodology under development. <laughs> they haven't quite uh, developed the facial recognition, keep you in your zone software quite yet. Or the fences are still going up or, you know, yeah. whatever the holdup is. What are those things called from X-Men? Sentinels? Is that the big robots that the X-Men used to fight? Maybe. You're talking about the ones in like Days of Future Past, right? From that yeah. movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's right. But we're we're going we're gonna to Google that. <laughs> we're going to Google. Yes. The Sentinels are from X-Men, first yes. premiered in X-Men number 14 in November of 1965. So Stanley and Jack Kirby were predicting this 15 minutes community uh, conspiracy all the way back in 65. Of course, speaking of conspiracies, there's a big conspiracy to steal our entire River Valley, stick it under federal control, and charge Edmontonians $90 for the privilege of walking down into the River Valley. At least if the naysayers are to be believed. Stephanie actually did some pretty great reporting this week, delving into the National Urban Park Plan, which is... As everyone supporting this will tell you, very different from a national park plan. What's the story on this explainer? Well, we've talked about this before, of course, the initiative to try to, to have Edmonton's River Valley be named one of these national urban parks. This is federal initiative. Proponents of this say that it could bring financial support to Edmonton for things like tourism, signage, maintenance, all that kind of stuff with very little downside, it would seem, in terms of, uh, as you point out, it's not going to be like a national park where Parks Canada is in charge or anything like that. The governance would stay local. But that hasn't stopped some developments here. So Leduc Beaumont MLA Brandon Lunty has put forward a private member's bill, which is going to be debated because the legislature is reconvening for its spring session. That is all about making sure that the provincial government has some say over what happens here. Less charitably, this is about the provincial government finding yet another thing to fight the federal government on. Stephanie spoke to Councillor Aaron Paquette about this, and I love what he said. He said, why is the province suddenly interested when they haven't been interested for so long? 
And why show that interest in the form of legislation that sort of comes out of nowhere rather than picking up the phone or even walking the few blocks from the legislature to City Hall? Good question. Like you said, this is an idea to, you know, own the libs, as it were. That is the perpetual provincial government goal here. But what I did find fascinating is the big fear with something like this national urban park plan is that it becomes a national park and you need a national park pass to access it. And then the feds control all of your infrastructure within that park borders. And, you know, proponents of the national park plan would say, whoa, 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 that's not what we're talking about. But Mac, there's been one national urban park so far. As it turns out, it's actually going to become a national park proper. Close, yeah. I mean, there's the Rouge National Urban Park in Toronto. That was the first one. And that's the one that sort of kicked off this whole idea for this program to create more national urban parks. That one hasn't been turned into a Parks Canada one. But there's this national urban park proposed in Windsor, Ontario. It's 900 acres of land currently owned by three levels of government, two First Nations, some private owners, et cetera, et cetera. And that one would actually become a national park. And that could be subject to Parks Canada control. So that is sort of interesting. But that's not what's being proposed for all of these other national urban parks. The government has been pretty clear that local governance and the local context would be taken into account on that. Yeah. And of course, the idea with the park in Windsor is this is a very large space and the proponents involved actually got together around the table and said, you know, wouldn't it be easier for all of us if this actually was a national park? I think there is no one involved in the city that wants that for our river valley. That's right. And city manager Andre Korbold has said a couple of times that it's just not on the table for any sort of ownership to be transferred to the federal government and presumably not to the provincial government either because, you know, in practice, the city has been the entity that has been looking after the river valley since our very first zoning bylaw. Of course, the next steps on this are actually kind of the same as the next steps on this the last time we talked about this. Uh, you'll remember that back in August... Uh, councillors have voted to move to the planning phase. And Parks Canada has to go through a whole series of committees and a whole slew of approvals. So we haven't actually quite moved on to that phase. We're still in that pre-planning phase right now until Parks Canada gives the go-ahead to move into the planning phase. And in the meantime, we'll see what happens with this private member's bill. Speaking of waiting and seeing, um, there is a lot of wait and see happening with will the city have rec center employees showing up at the rec centers and the libraries and all sorts of city facilities very soon. Uh, CSU 52 negotiations are ongoing and I would say beginning the boiling over process. Both sides are clearly posturing and it appears neither truly wants to take job action, but both sides seem ready and willing to actually take job action. The most recent update being the city of Edmonton has gone to the Alberta Labor Relations Board and applied for an employer proposal vote, which was granted. And this essentially means that the city's quote unquote best and final offer will not just be presented to the union negotiators, but will be presented to the entire union membership and referendum style, the union membership will have a direct vote on the city's proposal. Yeah, that vote will start at 7 a.m. on March 4th and it will run until 3 p.m. on March 7th. It's an electronic vote. And if a majority of those members vote in favor of it, it will form the new collective agreement and any other negotiations with the union will be bypassed. And of course, the union is calling on all of its members to vote no on that offer. And just to be clear again about that offer, 
It's a 7.25% wage increase over five years with retroactive pay, hybrid work, and other benefits. The city said that this balances the needs of its employees and the public because it's facing a $50 million year-end deficit and other financial challenges over the next couple of budgets. The union, of course, says that they haven't offered anything new after 18 months of bargaining and wondered why, you know, employees are having to face the brunt of this. I would say that we've entered the political part of the collective bargaining process. We saw this a lot with the SAG negotiations down in Hollywood over the past year, where when negotiation went to an impasse, suddenly it was litigated through the press. It's much easier to paint union employees with a negative brush if they directly voted against the deal. The city is gearing up to say, we've presented a great offer, we've presented something that protects Edmonton taxpayers, and look at these greedy union employees that won't take it. That is my take of why they would go through this action, because if they weren't trying to paint with a brush, why would they go to the union membership? Is not the point of collective bargaining to bargain collectively through your union negotiators? You might be right about that. It could also just be that They've been at a standstill for a while now. Didn't seem like they were making any progress. That's why you have things like employer proposal votes to allow it to move forward. But to lend some credence to the idea that this is about posturing now, the city issued a press release today, Thursday, February 29th, as we're recording this, about its 2023 financial results because they've released the agendas and there's a report in there. And it shows an operating deficit of $48.2 million in 2023. And so there's a statement from Stacey Padbury, the CFO and Deputy City Manager of Financial and Corporate Services. And I mention that only because we often get operating and other financial updates at council. I think we get them quarterly, actually, in the agendas. We don't usually issue news releases or statements about that, but the city has taken the extra step to do that this time. I, in those comments, painted the city of Edmonton as a sort of like bad faith negotiator brush. I'm not saying that's necessarily what's happening, but it should be noted that on the other side, the union, the union president, Lanny Chudik, he's someone who has actively called in many cases for the Valley Line West to be canceled. He's called for Mike Nickel to be anointed mayor of Edmonton, and he strongly endorsed Mike Nickel and his politics. So to say that uh, Lanny Chudik is fully aligned with the vision for the best Edmonton, I don't think is quite right either. Does that make him a bad union negotiator? I don't quite know. But just because you belong to a union and just because you're president of the union doesn't mean you necessarily have what we believe are the best interests of Edmontonians at heart. So maybe that is a feeling that the city of Edmonton has as well. Maybe they are at an impasse with this one part and they actually think that the membership wants to approve this. I personally don't think the membership is going to approve this at all. I don't think it's going to be anything close. I think we're going to get a 90% rejection, just like with the strike vote. But I suppose we'll see. As the city debates with the financial challenges of funding growth of labor, they've cut back in other ways. One of the specific ways they've cut back is $600,000 to end poverty Edmonton this year, ramping further and further down until Ed poverty Edmonton is completely out of city-funded money. Um, this is a kind way of saying the city has completely shuttered and Poverty Edmonton as an organization. And we heard last week um, from some of the people involved in Head Poverty Edmonton saying this is the end, but framing it in a way of like, we're going to do the best that we can with what we're given. But guys, you're not being given much at all. This is this is the end. Yes, you and Stephanie, I believe, made a rapid fire joke about this last week. But I wanted to talk about it just briefly because, you know, as, as you point out, we've heard some additional things since last week. Councillor Jans 
said there's been some progress on the issues that this organization was meant to address, but it's a question of should we be spending millions of dollars on this committee? I have a long history with this, actually. I was part of the committee that led to the task force that led to End Poverty Edmonton, and I wrote quite a bit about the early days of End Poverty Edmonton on my blog, and I'll put that those links in the show notes. You know, this kind of really kicked off in 2014, so here we are 10 years later. And I think you could point out that some things have improved, but I don't know how much of that is attributable to this organization. It seems to me that the most useful thing and Poverty Edmonton has done in recent years is occasionally to make policy statements mainly directed at the provincial government, right? So when there's resolutions that are come forward that are not aligned with the goals of ending poverty in a generation, when there's an election or a budget or something, you know, they'll put out a policy statement around their priorities. I think that's useful and there's probably a need for some of that to happen. But the problem with this whole initiative from the very beginning has been generational change, looking at systems, addressing root causes, and very few of those things can be done by Edmonton, let alone an arm's length organization that the city funds with mostly volunteers working on its committees and things like that. It serves a useful function for engagement, for you know hearing from experts, for bringing people together, for convening conversations. But unfortunately, that's usually where those things end. Like this organization cannot do anything about the minimum wage in Alberta except a policy statement. It cannot do anything about early childhood costs except a policy statement. And that's where the rubber needs to hit the road. And I don't know that it was aggressive enough in pushing for those things to justify its continued existence when the city itself already does some of that provincial advocacy when council and, uh, and the city formally put out, you know, budget uh, requests or, or budget priorities for the province, which they usually ignore anyway. For someone to be taken seriously as an organization that is performing generational change, you kind of need to have successes under your belt, right? Like if End Poverty Edmonton had, you know, reduced poverty by 20% in Edmonton year over year, you'd be like, look, this is our record, and here's how we can get there. Without some of those incredible successes credited to the organization, and Poverty Edmonton often was talked about as a bit of a joke. The idea that we can end poverty? No, we can't, right? That is what you'd hear when people talked about end poverty Edmonton and about council's goals to end poverty. And of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't have had those goals or we shouldn't have spun up this organization, but we're reaching a point where under end poverty Edmonton's tenure of existing, poverty and houselessness has gotten worse. I'm not saying it's the fault of this organization. We've had a once-in-a-generation pandemic. But you look at the results that have happened during this organization's existence, and it makes it difficult to take the organization seriously, I think, just as a member of the public. And then as someone who in the provincial government who already, I would say, has a tenuous, if not antagonistic, relationship with some of the ways that End Poverty Edmonton would suggest we address root causes... I just think the efficacy of the organization, the policy statements are going to be ignored. If we're cutting the organization's budget by $600,000 this year, what would I rather have for $600,000? You know, um, a policy statement that the province is going to ignore or buying a few thousand people a couple of meals. Uh, one of those just seems more helpful. It's impossible, as you say, for this organization to have a win like, you know, we've reduced poverty 20% year over year. There have been wins. 
that this organization can attribute to its existence. I think shifting the language, at least at the city, from being about managing poverty to being about eliminating poverty, you could maybe count that as a victory, right? And I'm sure you could look up and find all of the the many ways that other city documents and policies and things like that were impacted. I think it's hard to talk about this, though, without talking about the people involved. I will say first, if you look at the list of folks who are involved with End Poverty Edmonton in either a committee or staff or other capacity, they're all amazing Edmontonians who care deeply about this city and actually really do want to have an impact. I truly believe that. I don't think anyone's involved in this organization for you know, bad reasons or anything like that. I think they all really care. And this was one of the opportunities that was in front of them to participate in doing something about this. But in addition to losing the 600,000, they're also losing their executive director, Eric Ampman, who I also believe has his heart in the right place, but who has found himself, I think, in a fairly difficult position. He is, of course, a member of the Edmonton Police Commission. He was the chair of the commission for a while or the vice chair as well. Like, he's got that responsibility at the same time as he's been the executive director of this organization. Now, what I said about shifting from eliminating poverty in a generation, you know, to that approach rather than managing, kind of feels like we've gone in the wrong direction again in recent years. Because as we've talked about on this podcast ad nauseum, the police seem to be driving the agenda here in Edmonton, at least when it comes to the visible effects of poverty. And their solution tends to be about managing the problem, not addressing the root cause and and solving the problem. He's not the only one, Mr. Antman. One of the uh, board members of End Poverty Edmonton, former councillor Ben Henderson, also is a newly appointed member of the Edmonton Police Commission. And I, sh- I too share your thoughts that these people on this board, they have to have their motivations in the right place and they have to truly believe they want to help. Otherwise, why would you commit? These are people who are willing to push the boulder up the mountain. And their experience is all in service. They've you know, been a counselor or worked for organizations that serve the public, like this is not a new thing for them. This is another reason why I really believe their hearts are in the right place. I do wonder if, um, you know, they're smart people, certainly as smart as us who have a podcast, they might see the same thing that we see where, well, the police are driving the bus on um, poverty response in the city of Edmonton. So uh, if you want to affect change, the place to affect it is at the policing level. Uh, Not quite affecting the change, I think, that they would hope. But, you know, maybe they're waiting for their majority to appear. I would also think we should look at other organizations that are arm's length from the city that are funded in a similar way to End Poverty Edmonton. I think when it comes to the nonprofit sector, there's an awful lot of overlap between organizations. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. For the most part, we don't cut budgets and get rid of things that overlap. So this is a bit of a unique approach here for city council. And I'd be wondering about other organizations that they might be looking at in a similar way. Certainly not Explore Edmonton. They're good for their $6 million. And of course, when we're talking about poverty, it is inextricably linked to housing costs and houselessness and uh, affordable housing. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, was in Edmonton just last week announcing a slew of cash, $175 million for affordable housing. Yeah, this is to fast track more than 5,200 new housing units over the next three years. Uh, So this is the federal government, you know, trying to put its money where its mouth is about addressing affordable nonprofit housing. The idea here is to, quote, cut red tape 
and fast-track the construction of over 600,000 new homes for people in town cities and Indigenous communities across Canada. That's the Housing Accelerator Fund, which this funding for Edmonton is a part of. So this is a good thing, I think, that Edmonton's getting some federal money to support this. It's aligned with initiatives that we already have, that we already care about. The city itself wrote about affordable housing this week and said that it's invested $133 million between 2019 and 2022 to create the 2,800 new affordable housing units, some of which are supportive, um, that we've talked about in the past. And it aims to add another 2,700 by 2026, and this funding will help us do that. I'm an Edmontonian, so my typical pastime is comparing myself with Calgary. So I'm going to do that a little bit and say that I'm a little bit frustrated with this $175 million from the feds because last summer, Calgary was debating a essentially the equivalent of our zoning bylaw renewal, a zoning bylaw change. And Calgary was very clearly trending towards a more restrictive zoning. They were not going to legalize housing across the city. And at that point, the federal housing minister stepped in and said, no, no, no. If you do this, you don't get any federal money for housing accelerator funds. So watch yourselves. And Calgary went ahead and approved some more permissive zoning. I'll note that this zoning is less permissive than Edmonton went with our ZBR by quite a bit. And we did it without any federal coaxing. Calgary got in excess of $210 million from the feds already. Uh, so Calgary started after us, had to have the feds bludgeon them, and then got more money than Edmonton. Now, I accept maybe there's a like per capita funding arrangement and Calgary has a few more people than Edmonton. So maybe that's where it comes from. But Mac, it just feels punitive. It feels like we didn't get a gold star for being really great at enabling housing. The other thing I'm wondering about is, you know, the federal government has several programs about this. There's the Rapid Housing Initiative, which we've had to apply for and make applications for to get a small amount of funding. This accelerator funding seemed attractive in that it was a large chunk of money that was committed without having to go through that same kind of um, bureaucracy that we've had to do in the past to get a smaller number of, of housing units. Um, but absolutely. We should be looking at is Edmonton getting a, a fair shake here. Good start. Great. Glad to have you at the table, feds. But I look over to BC where the feds contributed $2 billion in a matching program for housing because the provincial government got on board. And go figure, Mac. Um, I sure wish the Alberta government was at the table. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we could be thinking a lot bigger here if we had support from the other level of government that has way more money than we do. And the responsibility, of course. And, and the responsibility, you're right. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's not the case. Just one other number that I think is worth mentioning. Edmonton has about 400,000 homes, and less than 15,000 of those are deemed affordable. The need, people in Edmonton households that are currently struggling in core housing need, it's closer to 46,000. We're quite a ways off from that. Even building another 52 units of housing over the next three years is only going to get us, you know, less than halfway to addressing that really critical need in our city. So there's a long way to go on this. It's progress, but we're not there yet. Neither are we all the way there on processing our organic waste. Um, Mac, it feels like we've been talking about this for a decade now, whether it's composters having their roofs collapsing or rolling out green bins that still just get filtered into the trash because we don't have our facilities up to date. But a new City of Edmonton report has projected that the city's organics waste volumes will increase to 121,000 tons by 2027. And as a comparator, 
13,700 tons was the amount processed in 2020. So that is a predicted eight times increase in seven years. That's a lot. That is a lot. And the city's attributing the success of that to the green cart program, which, of course, we introduced for single-family homes back in 2021. So as you mentioned, committee is going to talk about this coming up. And there's a few options they have to as to how to deal with this. So we'll hear what committee decides next week. But they could build a new outdoor composting facility. They could further invest in the trash digester, or they could outsource this to meet future demand. Uh, Troy, I stuck this on here because it's coming up and it's something that uh, we're going to be paying attention to. But, you know, I feel like I wanted to go back and look at when we first started talking about the introduction of the organic separation. Wasn't it foreseeable that there would be an increase and that we would need to do something to deal with it? It always amazes me that these reports come up four years halfway into this. By these metrics, we've already increased several times over what we did in 2020. Surely we could have predicted that early on, or were we assuming that people weren't going to use the green bins? I mean, it it seems a bit strange that this is a discussion point now in 2024. I mean, helpfully for the city, uh, my neighbor still has the stickers on his green bin. He has never once opened the green bin, so he's doing his part to make sure these facilities are uh, not at capacity. The thing that really bothers me about this, Mac, is every time we talk about recycling or composting or any of the like in the city of Edmonton, it's always framed from the perspective of a scam. Like, I think back to we had a paper recycling facility that was actually a scam by city administration (laughs) to milk some money and never actually recycled. I think to our anaerobic digester facility that required millions of extra money and hasn't quite met its production goals. I think to, you know, our schemes for biofuel generation on all these plants that we paid for that would make, you know, fuels from our trash that to my knowledge have made a very scant quantity of fuel. Far be it for me to oversimplify. But composting and organics is put stuff in pile, it makes dirt. That's roughly what we're dealing with here. And yet we don't seem to quite be able to accomplish that, which, you know, I get it. There's methane, there's other, you know, complicating factors. But it really strikes me that somewhere in the world has probably done this before us. Could we hire a couple experts to come in and just do it? Because it doesn't seem that complicated. It shouldn't. And yet the reality that you described is what happens every time. So in this article that Lauren Boothby at Post Media wrote, she's talking about the solids, high solids anaerobic digester. So this was something that the city funded, $42 million, was supposed to be able to process tens of thousands of tons every year. It has never done more than 29,000 tons a year. It is far less than what we were promised. I feel like every time we talk about these things, either they're scams, as you point out, or it's like, this is the thing that's going to solve our problem. It goes into operation, and it's never where we said it was going to be. It's never meeting expectations. And so it's really hard every time these conversations come up to have any kind of faith that we're going to be able to do something about it. I don't know if other cities have uh, solved this problem without a doubt. There are lots of other cities who process a lot more waste than we do. So we should at least be able to learn from what those folks do. But currently, we don't seem to be doing that. Tell you what, Mac, I know a surefire way to get rid of all the garbage, and it's the old Alberta farmer way. Just burn it. And that idea is presented to you by the Rapid Fire segment. 
Alberta has rolled out new, stricter requirements for green energy projects, requiring that they not be built on Class 1 or Class 2 agricultural soil, that the builder posts a bond or security and trust for potential cleanup, and that the infrastructure not be built within a 35-kilometer buffer zone of protected areas, pristine viewscapes, or the natural habitat of Bigfoot families. An exciting new phase is beginning on TransPod's Hyperloop technology, as the company has announced plans to build a 75-meter test bench in Edmonton. The technology, which Elon Musk told his biographer he announced solely to encourage cancellation of a high-speed rail infrastructure in California, represents incredible potential. After building a 75-meter test in Edmonton, the company is most certainly going to build the 300-kilometer line straight from Edmonton to Calgary, a line that could be traveled in less than 45 minutes, much faster than typical high-speed rail, which is, you know, not worth pursuing. Alberta NDP leadership candidate Jody Calhoun-Stonehouse says her campaign will focus on climate change and drought, including removing the carbon tax, noting that, quote, the issue is it's not reducing greenhouse gas emissions, end quote. Her leadership will draw from her strong experience on the Edmonton Police Commission, a body established to provide police accountability where she used her role to demand the firing of elected officials critical of the police. Okay, I want to go back to the transpod one quickly. So seven, <laughs> 75 meters, I just looked at. So a, a football field is roughly 91 meters in length. So it's not a very long thing they're planning to build here. Why would you call it a bench? It makes it sound so small. Like, what is even the point of this? I think there are longer benches in the uh, Elks Stadium. When Transpod launches their uh, new test bench facility, I'm sure there will be an event for it on the Taproot Edmonton calendar. Um, but not yet because it is vaporware. Though you can go to edmonton.taproot.events right now and you can see a ton of events that you can actually go to. A couple things I want to mention. Uh, I'm really curious actually about this Ville Aero Aerospace and Logistics Exposition. It's taking place this weekend. It actually is underway right now, I believe. That's about innovation technology sustainability related to logistics and aviation. I think we have this really interesting quiet aerospace industry in Edmonton. I've learned about all of these companies over the last several years that are doing interesting things in this space, and we don't really ever talk about it. Southern parts of the province seem to get a little bit more attention for aviation because of WestJet and, and de Havilland's new facility and all of that. But that's kind of intriguing. And one other one, you know, Skirts of Fire. Uh, we've been advertising this in Taproot for a little while now. It's 10-day theater and multidisciplinary arts uh, festival, and it kicks off today as we're recording this and runs to March 10th. One of the things I saw in the events calendar is the Beverly Heights Community League Variety Show. And Mac, this this is the apex of like local events because this is a community league organizing a variety show. It's like an adult talent show. It could be phenomenal. It could be a travesty. Either way, it will be a blast. And I, th I think I got to show up. I think it sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm very curious about that. Well, of course, you can see all that and more at edmonton.taproot.events. And that concludes this Taproot event, this podcast for this week. But we will be back in a week, and you can wait until then. If you can't, there's a whole back catalog of 252 episodes. You can just, you can look fondly back about when our biggest concerns was, did a bench have or have not a plaque. Man, weren't those nice times when that's what we were concerned about. A real bench. It was a real bench we were talking about that you could sit on. <laughs> Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.